What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of THP Strength. In this week's podcast, or today's podcast, we will be speaking with Chris Bearcat. A little bit about Chris. He has a bunch of degrees and certificates. Firstly, and maybe most importantly, he has a master's of science in exercise and nutrition, graduated from the University of Tampa in 2016. He is a adjunct professor there. We'll go over that bio in a second. He also got his bachelor of science in athletic training from Stony Brook University in 2015 and has his athletic trainer certification and is a certified sports nutritionist. Chris is also a graduate of the exercise and nutritional science math, or I guess firstly, he is a graduate of the exercise nutritional science master's program at the University of Tampa, an adjunct professor teaching various courses on nutrition, exercise fundamentals, and supplementation. He is also a published scientist who continues to study how to optimize body composition through training and nutritional interventions under Dr. D'Souza in the Human Performance Lab. Chris is also a competitor himself with three contest prep seasons under his belt. He started competing as a teenager in 2011 and was successful out of the gate winning his novice bantamweight class as well as the teen division in the INBF Long Island Experience. He then competed in 2013 and won the Open Lightweight and Juniors Division at the INBF Northeast America. In 2017, Chris competed at the 2017 NPC Tampa Bay Classic, where he won his classic physique class and open middleweight class. He then competed in his home turf at the 2017 INBF Hercules Championships, where he finished second in the open lightweight class. He then flew across the country to California to compete at the INBF Muscle Mayhem and also finished second place in the, in the open lightweight class there. Sorry, that was a handful. Anyways, Chris, we're pumped to have you on. Thanks for taking the time Thank to do that. Guys. And did we miss anything? No, there? that was more than enough. I really appreciate it. And saying INBF like six times can, <laughs> can be a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, I was like, man, this is a lot. So we have a bunch of questions for Chris. He is a specialist, obviously, when it comes to a lot of areas, particularly nutrition. And because he has his uh, master's degree in exercise science and then also has an athletic training certification, you have all of your bases covered. Would you yeah, agree man, with that? I'm, I'm really uh, grateful for the, the, the foundation I have, I guess I would say. Originally, I, w- I thought I was going to go into physical therapy, and I actually worked in PT clinics for six <laughs> years. I worked since I was literally 18 as, a, as an assistant, as an intern, and then as an aide, and then as an athletic trainer. I worked at PT clinics before I had any educational background, and then a- as an ATC. So I was in that realm for a while, something I'm super passionate about but I just didn't want to do that day in and day out and really fell in love with bodybuilding. So shifted gears and went everything exercise and nutritional science based thereafter. Yeah, man, mm-hmm. I'm super grateful for the, yeah. the foundation I have. And I'm someone who just is continuously trying to learn. I feel like you get to a certain point, especially at the beginning, you feel like you actually know everything. That's and then, really yeah, like- a thousand percent. And there comes this point where your ass gets humbled really quick and you're like, wow, there's so many more questions that we have that I, I want to explore. And, and that's what I'm really grateful to do in the research realm. Yeah, that's awesome. I ironically and myself or coincidentally, maybe Isaiah and I both <laughs> initially went in for, I think Isaiah was mechanical engineering and then switched to exercise science also for PT. And I think so many people go into PT being told like, oh, this is the best option because it gives you the most job sure. security and you've also have the benefit of working with athletes and you get to do, be around sport and all stuff. And then it's reality. You're like teaching 60 year old women how to stand up and sit down that are maybe overweight yeah. or like <laughs> dealing with 70 year olds with knee, knee and hip replacements or whatever. So it's just 
very different, I think, than what people assume it is. And I think that pushes a lot of people when they start to get into it and you start to get those hours and stuff like that even. And you're like, you know what? This isn't what I want to do. When I was coaching, it was the same way. It was like Groundhog's yeah. Day. You're like in, out, same thing every day. It's like teaching a lesson in history about Abraham Lincoln like 15 yeah. times a day every day for 365 days like is just yeah. way overboard ironically as well my cousin was an at for the oh, ravens wow. getting his experience from that as well and hearing what it's like at that level and the time commitments and stuff like that are crazy and then obviously like in exercise science you have a lot of people like that too we'll cover the advertisements at the end because i don't i want to get right into it here but we have a, a bunch of questions here hunter you are our go-to guy for nutrition and i'm sure you're gonna have better questions maybe than what i will i'm sure i will have questions as we go through here but hunter if you want to lead it off with kind of your first question for chris yeah I think chris, that would be so good. something a uh, little bit of background about me is i played uh, division one baseball at tulane university down in or in new orleans which is where i am now and uh, i was always obsessed with nutrition and maximizing performance at tulane my strength and conditioning coach there was a former Olympian. And so I was always picking his brain, like, how do you eat? How do you train? How do you do all this? And it was always just like, Hunter, just do what I tell you to do. Yeah. And so I was always hurt. And when I stopped playing, it just I started plowing through the research. And I remember Mike Matthews was the first one that kind of kicked off like the, oh, there's like real science behind this. And from there, <laughs> like, it's just been devouring like podcasts and papers and textbooks about metabolism yeah. and exercise science so something that i am currently fascinated with is the state of research on maximizing performance for athletic events and i know that's like a catch-all term athletic events you have everything from a 100 meter dash to a marathon and everything in between i know that you mainly focus or at least i assume that you mainly focus with bodybuilders and physique competitors is that correct yeah that's definitely my primary focus but i actually have a huge interest in, in different sports, even things like MMA performance. Oh, even though God. I don't make a ton of content on that, my brother was a pro MMA fighter and he coaches in that realm. So I, I dabble in other things, but I don't put that stuff on social media. It's just not my it's not my niche, but I, I, I love that stuff. So yeah, performance overall, it's way more than just resistance training. Okay. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Chris. You're in I'm Tampa, in Tampa said, Florida right? right now, yeah. I'm from Long Island, New York. Okay, so are you familiar with Steve Mowry? Do you know who Steve Mowry is? No. He's an MMA guy from around my hometown, but I thought he trained out in Tampa, and I was like, maybe he might. So I know not. the MMA scene in the Northeast, so New York, Long Island, New Jersey, Connecticut—that whole scene—I'm way more familiar with than the MMA scene down here. Okay. Yeah. Oh, got it. Okay. Yeah, he's from well Butler, PA, which is like just north of gotcha. Pittsburgh. But yeah, maybe check him out after the episode, Steve. If you're listening to this, what's up? Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Anyways, uh, Hunter, I guess you never really directed your question. Did you have a, a question specifically related to that? I'm starting to list a bunch of yeah. Stuff. MMA. I recently just started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Muay Thai, so we'll touch on that in a second. I'm sure because I'm fascinated with that realm because I'm not happy about it. <laughs> yeah, John is. <laughs> it's interrupting with his regular training yeah. <laughs> volume and my plans, um, but so fine. I would love to start off with a little bit about how you approach maximizing an athletic performance from, so from a nutritional standpoint. So if you have an athlete come to you and let's just start off, most of our athletes are track and field and basketball. Okay. So if you were to have a, let's just start off with a basketball athlete who comes to you and says, I've heard that oatmeal before games, the go-to, you gotta have fast acting carbs. 
So like how many packets of oatmeal should I eat before a game? Cause that's yeah. a lot of the questions that, that I feel. How do you take <laughs> that and start to build out some sort of nutritional blueprint or guideline for an athlete knowing that their knowledge point or their starting point is just, I need carbs. Sure. So there's a lot I can talk about and I, I'm just going to rant off. Oh, please. It's going to be valuable. Yep. Oh, that's please what do. I always don't Let's worry. Go. I'm super excited. <laughs> that's what this podcast cool, is. Man. So <laughs> obviously context is super important. A lot of sports are weight dependent. Let's say you take wrestling or gymnastics or even cheerleading, MMA, whatever it may be. Depending on what phase they're in, the level of importance their peri-workout nutrition is going to serve for their performance to recovery is going to make a big difference. So if you have somebody who is in a weight loss kind of realm and they're in a caloric deficit, their pre-workout nutrition is going to be way more important compared to somebody who's been maintaining their body weight or even gaining a little body weight and they're constantly in this full glycogen state where they have plenty of energy reserves. All right. So if you have full glycogen levels, and you're not extremely lean, like an unhealthy level of leanness, you should be able to do like a 30 to 45 minute bout and perform really well without getting too caught up in what is my pre-workout nutrition looking like. Okay. But on the other end of the spectrum, if you're trying to maximize your performance, that's when all of these variables start coming into play. It can be hard to contextualize how much should somebody eat because it's also going to depend on like how much they're eating throughout the 24-hour window. But a really good recommendation for pre-workout nutrition is about one gram of carbs per kilogram of total body weight. So let's just say you have a 70 kg athlete. Having around 70 grams of carbs in that pre-workout meal is probably going to be a sweet spot. For more endurance-based athletes, it can go as high as three grams per kilogram. So if you have a cross country athlete or something like that, you want to make sure that you're fueling them with a lot more glucose and carbohydrate, depending on what they're doing. But then it also comes down to what food sources are you eating and how long before the training session are you consuming that food? So for example, if I eat something like 70 grams of carbs from something like sweet potato, that's going to sit in my stomach for quite a while and it's a much slower digesting carb compared to something like cream of rice that is going to be digested way faster or even something like rice crisp cereal or some sort of cereal based carbohydrate that can be broken down really quick so you got to take these things into consideration when it comes to pre-workout nutrition even though you can have a faster digesting carb i still recommend utilizing lower glycemic sources so you're not getting a massive influx in blood glucose levels too quickly. And therefore, when that does happen, you have a much quicker crash of blood glucose levels. And a lot of people can go hypoglycemic mm -hmm. while they're exercising and they crash and they fatigue in the middle of their bout. And that's the last thing you want. So utilizing a lower glycemic carbohydrate can be really beneficial as well as potentially adding some sorts of fat and maybe a little bit of fiber uh, to slow down that digestion and give you more stable blood glucose levels just so you have a, a stable source of energy throughout your session rather than having that, that rapid spike in blood glucose and a rapid drop while you're in the middle of exercise. Yeah, much of what you said was like flashback from my master's degree class when I was in nutrition. I was like, ah, oh, that's right. You take the fat, you take the protein with it, it slows digestion. My mentor always used to say this when I would ask him about nutrition and protein intake, just talking about the how fast you can digest it and have whatever 
macronutrients broken down and used in the blood. He's like, it's very different if you take in a protein shake versus if there's a, a protein shake that was just put inside your stomach versus a chunk of steak. <laughs> That's very different in terms of how fast your body is going to be able to break that down and get in the bloodstream, whatever locally, take it to wherever area systemically that Absolutely. it needs to be used and then utilize. Like it's very different. One of the questions I actually had about protein intake was this question of timing and when it should be taken in. I think previously we had thought, oh, you have to get this post-workout window, you know what I mean? This like hour or two where the anabolic you know, window optimally, yeah, the anabolic window where you're optimally going to be uh, muscle protein synthesis is going to occur to a higher degree over the course of whatever hours of time after you do that. So it's really important that you do that and you need to take it in with a little bit of sugar so that you co-transport protein in better and all this different stuff. And now it's, yeah, actually that shit was wrong. <laughs> like just get the protein you need yeah. in a day. What is your lens on that? Has that changed? Is that what's a correct way to view it? Does the time yeah. matter? Is that, does that, yeah, exist? I would say the window actually does exist. And I'll explain the level of importance and who really needs to take these things into consideration. Going back to what you said, like the difference between a whey protein shake and a piece of steak, totally different. So if you have 30 grams of whey isolate, your amino acid levels in your blood plasma should actually peak at around 60 minutes post consumption. Whereas if you're having a piece of steak, that's going to take three to five hours to, to fully digest. And that's just massively different. And then even taking 30 grams from something like fish compared to steak is different. And then even looking at like ground beef compared to an actual sirloin steak is totally different too, because you have so much more surface area. So you're going to break that down way quicker. Mm -hmm. So all of these things do matter. Another thing that impacts digestion rates is again, depending on those athletes, like if you're looking at like athletes that do perform in weight classes and they are cutting, you will hear athletes say, when I'm in a cut, I'm hungry way more frequently and I feel like I digest my food faster. And, and you actually do to a certain extent. Your body prioritizes digestion because you need those nutrients coming in because you've been in an energy deficit for so long. So those nutrients are way more important at that time compared to when your energy reserves are full, glycogen levels are full, body fat percentage is higher, your body doesn't care about digesting all this food as quickly because it just doesn't need it as important. So that's another thing to mm -hmm. consider. Going to the anabolic window, it really does exist. I know a lot of people in the evidence-based realm just say, hey, as long as you get in a sufficient amount of protein per day, you're fine. Again, if you're just looking for like average results, yeah, you are going to be fine. And it is more important to consume an adequate amount of protein than it is to get in 30 grams of protein post-workout, right? So let's just say you have someone that's under eating their protein for the entire day, but they are hitting the anabolic window. They would be better off actually getting a sufficient amount of protein on a daily basis. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, yeah. if you have someone consuming a sufficient amount of protein per day, but they're not paying any attention at all to their post-workout nutrition, and they're getting in that protein feeding two hours post-workout instead of 30 minutes post-workout, they're actually leaving some room on the table for maximizing their recovery process because your ability to spike protein synthesis to the greatest degree is highest post-workout, and you are more sensitive to drive in more carbohydrate into the cells that you actually need. Again, if someone's like, tripping over the post-workout window, but they're not even tracking their total protein intake. They're doing something wrong. And then same thing, it could be vice versa. There's no like mm -hmm. black and white yes and no, but there's this huge gray spectrum that people need to really pay attention to. And this 
brings yeah. me to something that I try to hammer home with a lot of our athletes. It's that I feel like the the community has gone backwards from being so focused on these small minutia into we're swinging the pendulum back and they'll just generally hit this and generally do that and you should generally be fine. But a lot of our athletes are working out two times per day. So they'll do a weight training session and then they'll have a basketball practice or a game. And something that I try to drive home is, yeah, so you might hear that you're gonna replenish your glycogen stores over this over the 24 hour period and you'll be fine. But for you in particular, post your first exercise bout, you really need to focus on reuptake of a pretty sizable amount of carbs is what I tell them. Mm-hmm. And not so much to where like you can't move cause you're stuffed, but you should be consuming protein and a good amount of carbs within a one hour window post exercise to make sure that you have re-upped those stores so that you're ready for your second bout of training later on in the afternoon. How important do you think that truly is for an 18 year old athlete who may have that weight training session in the morning and then be expected to go 100% for a basketball practice in the afternoon? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. Especially what you said with just the space as a whole kind of 10 years ago being so focused on the minutia and the details and now everyone's oh none of it matters and, and it's not true like it does matter just that's yeah, refreshing to hear that's the, very the, refreshing to hear because you hear no, both it's, sides it's very annoying pet pretty often mind, man it absolutely does matter but the percentage points that you want to assign to the minutia shouldn't outweigh the percentage points that you're giving to the entire context and there are people like you can go to a regular commercial gym and you'll hear someone talk about minutia when they don't have their foundation in place. But once you, they don't even exactly, eat their exactly. <laughs> once you do have your foundation in place, if you want to improve, that's when you start focusing on the details, it's just the details don't matter for those that aren't paying attention to the foundation, but the details do matter to people who are trying to optimize performance. Going back to your question about mm-hmm. the basketball athletes, it's very important for them to have a high carbohydrate meal post resistance training if they are doing two days and they have a a basketball session later in that situation you can use a reference range of 1.5 to 2 grams of carbohydrate per kilogram of body weight so again you have a 60 kilo basketball player they should consume around 120 grams post-workout so they're ready to go for their basketball session later on and their ability to resynthesize glycogen is enhanced post-training so if they're not doing that, again, they're just missing out on an opportunity where their body is in this hypersensitized state. Okay. Yeah. What's actually funny is like you talking about all this takes me back specifically to grad school where I was training. I was a, I guess a professor at the time, a GA and teaching whatever, three or four courses, taking two or three courses as well. And then also training a lot. And I was at a spot where there was an Olympic training site for weightlifting, like clean and jerk and snatch. And those guys, and there was actually wrestlers as well, like Greco-Roman training for the Olympics. And you're talking about the best junior athletes in those respective sports in the country coming to BF middle of nowhere, basically Canada, <laughs> like cold as hell to yeah. just train kind of gives you Rocky vibes. But the, during that time, I would always make sure to do everything that you just said. So it was okay. An hour before my session, I'm making sure I'm taking in a substantial amount of carbohydrates so that I have fuel throughout that session. And then basically sandwiching the workout with those two nutrition periods, you know what I mean? Taking in some protein and carbohydrates beforehand. If I can stomach taking in some protein during the session, what's going to be more readily available after the session. So maybe I'll take in some protein during the session because there is that digestive window. And then 
maybe after the session or through whatever I'd take my protein shake, then I would take in a lot of carbohydrates because I would actually eat my biggest meal after that session, that two hour session, because I knew that I had just mm-hmm. depleted it. And I knew that I was more sensitive to mm-hmm. reuptake and I would take in a lot of protein with it and everything else. Maybe usually a shake with spinach, peanut butter, protein powder, uh, kale. I would put in milk, just literally as <laughs> cal- caloric macronutrient slush yeah. it was disgusting <laughs> i would just chug it down and we had to track like how many calories we were taking in and i think that meal typically would like that meal afterwards just with everything that i would put in it was excessive it was like a thousand yeah. to fifteen hundred calories just in that slush because there was so much fat yeah, and protein, yeah. <laughs> like carbs thrown in it but yeah it's just interesting to hear you say now and then i got away from that because life stressors, everything else came in the way. And I was like, I don't have the luxury of just training full time sure. as much anymore. Now I, I do have that luxury again, but I'm not as much in the habit of doing that because one, I fast and two, I've heard all over the, the board, what you should and shouldn't be doing. And I was like, I'm just going to make sure I get my protein intake in. I'm going to make sure I eat my vegetables yeah. and make sure I get my carbohydrate yeah. intake in and take my vitamins and make sure I take my whatever else supplements sure. I'm taking and just make sure I'm doing that. So it's interesting to hear in terms of how important it actually is if you could give it a percentage point and say if you've got your big rocks covered Mm -hmm. you're taking in the right amount of carbohydrates a day you're taking your micronutrients in the form of vitamins and minerals and then vegetables as well and you're taking enough calories how important is it to start getting the timing in in terms of if you could give it a percentage point what sort of increase are you going to see and where are you going to see that change is it hypertrophy is it energy levels is it yeah. Neural function where you I mean, it's, it's a little bit of everything. It's hard for me to put a percentage point, but I, I'll relay something to you that you might find interesting in regards to the research and why people say it's not that important. Okay. Mm-hmm. You might look at studies comparing, let's just say nutrient timing. Cause that's what we're talking about, right? The importance of a post-workout yeah. window. And let's just say people in the space are saying, Oh, it doesn't really matter. They're saying that because there was no statistical significance in these studies. Okay. Now, this study might have been six weeks long or eight weeks long or 10 weeks long. Sometimes, even though that these studies are reporting no statistical significance between groups, so somebody focused on post-workout nutrition versus those that are just consuming the same macronutrients and getting in an adequate amount of total nutrition per day, there might be a small trend and there might be an effect size that is favoring the, the nutrient timing group, okay? So if you extend that study that was eight weeks long to 16 weeks long, it may have been statistically significant if it was just a longer study. Okay. So Mm -hmm. when you're taking, when you're taking athletes that you're working with for three months, six months, one year, two years, those small details can up, can add up over time. So again, it just, you need to ask yourself or the clients you're working with and just understand the demographic that you're dealing with and say, how important is it to them to, to either maximize their results or get 90% of the results with less effort so it's more sustainable, right? If you have a competitive athlete that the most important thing to them is winning, then they should do every single thing that they can do because that's really what they care about. That is their priority. Now, if you have someone else that has three kids, works 50 hours a week, has a commute to work, and you're telling them to do all this nonsense, they'll just be like, dude, I have a life that I need to focus on and I can't be a full-time nutrition and exercise nut. So you have to understand what makes sense for each individual and then 
prioritize what's going to move the needle the most for that person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, it's maximum. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something that I like to relate <laughs> to them is I have some athletes that come to me and they're doing absolutely nothing and they want to go to a hundred overnight. And I'm like, look, like go read atomic habits by James clear and get an understanding that to change something, you start with what you can actually accomplish and build up to it. Because like yeah. you said, if I throw the kitchen sink at you and now on top of all the other life stressors you have, you now have to monitor every carb, every fat, every protein, the timing that you intake those macronutrients, what's your supplementation regimen like, how much sleep are you getting? It's I've just added so much stress to your life that now we're going backwards. Even if you get these things right now, you're gonna be so stressed, so chronically stressed that you're not doing everything perfect that we may have just actually hurt you. Gotcha. Um, yeah, totally. Anyway, I just think it's, I think it's like such a fascinating space with athletes because you're like walking the fine line between how much can they take, like how much are you giving them? <laughs> and then like how much can they actually monitor and progress with? So yeah, I don't know. That's one of my, one of the things that I frequently say is what can you handle when yeah. I look at my athletes? Like, I'm like, yeah, I try to push the needle as far as I can. Like realistically, how much can you handle? I will give you the same training that if you can handle it, I'll give you the same training that I would give to someone that is training to run the hundred meter dash in under yeah. 10 seconds. But can you handle that volume? Is that volume appropriate for you? Or are you sure. going to get hurt? Realistically outside of all that stuff though, assuming that stuff is they can do it mentally, yeah, how much can you take? <laughs> what is your resiliency for and your compliance for this? What is your threshold for the, the bullshit quote unquote? How long can you handle it? Because it's going to pay off. It might take, like you said, 16, 32, whatever a full year of time but it's going to be better than you not having done that in the first place but it just it's like a war of attrition like you just have to yeah. stay the course and handle it and then you're going to get better and isaiah's seen that happen hunter's yeah. seen it happen i tell my athlete like, in our field and i'm sure it's the same as you you have these instant immediate claims train with me for eight weeks and you'll jump eight inches higher or yeah. <laughs> do this program and you'll jump higher than you will yeah. on anything else like people just it's what's fast, it's what's easy, it's instant gratification, and it's not realistic, you know? I mean, to get better, it's delayed gratification. You gotta put the time in, you gotta do everything right, and that's how you get better. So that's kind of what we're dealing with, and obviously, like you said, you gotta maximize and control what you can with people, and and you have to ask yourself, like, what's Mm -hmm. realistic? I can't ask this guy, in my case, to do 10 by 10 squats. It's not realistic, (laughs) it's just not gonna happen. And definitely controlling that. One thing I did wanna jump into, kind of to change topics here and switch gears, is this question that Hunter you asked, because this is something I'm very interested in, which is the reverse dieting. My roommate right now is actually trying to lose weight and Hunter was like guiding him through that process. So I guess, Chris, can you, do you have experience with reverse dieting? What's your opinion on it? And what's the interplay between eating more and your metabolism increasing and then how you manipulate that to long-term yeah, lose weight? Just, can I just add one thing, Chris? And it's sure. the ability to, so I've worked with a nutritionist and their spin on it is let's actually start at the lowest caloric intake possible and let's slowly work it so that the end of your diet is when you're maximizing caloric intake and then let's see how much we can push the calories above your previous maintenance while remaining weight stable and so like their analogy is too many people try to figure out or back themselves into a corner of running on as little calories as possible instead of trying to figure out how many calories can we eat and still be the weight that you want to be gotcha yeah, it depends how you approach it. Hunter, the way you mentioned it, are you saying like you start a fat loss phase really aggressively and then immediately start reverse dieting? 
and see. Yeah, like, so it'd be a very slow process of starting at the lowest caloric intake you think that you would want to get to. And then week by week, you may add 50 calories, 50 calories, and then you're monitoring your weight the whole time and you're seeing like, are we still losing weight? Are we still losing weight? Yeah. And so it's something that I've actually had success with where I had a previous maintenance of 3,100 calories roughly. And now I'm up to almost 3,600, but I'm also almost 10 pounds less than where I was prior. And so it's been like a very eye-opening experience that before I would start with as many calories as possible, still lose weight. And then you slowly reduce, but now I see the benefit and maybe starting really low and yeah. working yourself back up. How do you not just tug the other direction and fuck up your metabolism by doing that? Though? <laughs> like, If I just drop down to 2000 calories, my body's going to be like, yep, here's a baseball bat. I'm just going to knock your head off. Like you're fucked for months. <laughs> like, how, Is that realistic to do? And how do you know where to even yeah, start so from that point? When I typically use the term reverse dieting, I typically utilize it after someone has already gone through their fat loss phase, they're in a very lean position and they now want to transition into a lean bulk or some sort of metabolic rebuild and get their calories higher and reestablish a new body fat set point. But what Hunter mentioned is what I do when I do aggressive mini cuts. So if I want to cut someone down in four to six to eight weeks, I usually start off aggressive and then each week add in a couple, it might, depends on the person, but I add in calories weekly or bi-weekly depending on how they're responding and essentially have them lose weight for six to eight weeks as an example, but they were in the largest deficit right off the bat. And the reason I do that is because mm -hmm. they're in the beginning when their body fat percent is higher, they have the lowest risk to lose any sort of lean body mass. So I maximize fat loss at first, losing lean mass isn't really yeah, at, at a high risk and then just reverse them from there. But when I reverse clients after fat loss phases, I do see them have the ability to reestablish a, a higher caloric intake than they previously were at when they were like at their previous maintenance at their previous set point. And then oftentimes their new set point is a leaner physique than their previous set point was. So it. So it's basically that you're the set point being the percentage of fat that they have and the amount of calories they need to take in to maintain that percentage of fat. So if I'm 8% and let's say I take in 3000 calories at 8%, you do this reverse dieting. Now I can say 8% at 3,500 calories or whatever else. Exactly. Exactly. Correct. So I would come, so I might find my roommate scenario. I'd be like, all right, you're 25. Let's bring you down to, I don't know what's realistic, but let's bring you down to 15 or whatever else. Or, and then from there, will reverse diet you back up so that if, let's say you're at 15% and you're consuming 2,500 calories or whatever else at 15% and we'll bring you back up. So now you're at 15%, but you're taking in 3000 calories yeah. or whatever else. Do you just keep doing that process up, down, up, down? Would you bring them back down yeah, at that it point? It depends. Depends on their goal and like how they're looking, if they still have more fat to lose and whatever it may be. I have a client right now that I'm working with. I took him down from 190 to now he's 156. But well, he was geez. maintaining his body weight at 3,500 calories at 190. Now he's actually eating like 3,750 at 156. And it's just, that's one of see, the most extreme scenarios I've ever seen. See, but yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, but this is why it's my goal with the athletes to do this. Because if you're an athlete like, like we have and they're training very intensely, if you can get away yeah. with maintaining a lower body fat set point, while also providing your body with more substrate for recovery, it's a double win because in athletic events, oh, if you're yeah. a lower, yeah. if you're a lower weight, 
and higher relative strength, you're going to perform better. And then on top of that, if you now get more calories to recover, it seems like you're just doubling up on a good thing there. A thousand percent. Not only do you just have more fuel to perform, a lot of people don't realize if your total calories are higher, your micronutrient intake is actually going mm-hmm. up as well. So like yep. your overall metabolic health can be in a healthier <laughs> place if you are staying lean. So yeah, it's, it, it can yeah, be super that's, advantageous. That's so with the, how far would you bring someone down? Because sometimes the issue we run into is, Hey, look, you want to jump higher, but you're yeah. fat and you can't jump high if you're fat, yeah. you gotta be lean. So how far would you bring someone down? Let's say we get a guy who comes in, he's yeah. 210. Are you just going to do a very, my lens on this is the best type of weight loss is the slow, like the slower you can do it with yeah. your deficit, the more mass you're going to, the more lean muscle mass you're going to maintain, the more realistic it is probably to sustain it. Because when you do those big yeah. drastic cuts, you could potentially, especially, you know, fuck up your metabolism. Especially because the training they're going to be doing is so intense. And if we get an athlete that's, has a high body fat, how would you juggle both? Like having, cause that's the priority should be to get them as lean as possible, but while also yeah. juggling this very intense training. Yeah, hundred percent. So in regards to how fast I would go, I don't like losing much more than 1% of their total body weight per week. So if you have someone that's 200 pounds, I want to aim for around two pounds of actual true weight loss per week. And that should be primarily coming from fat. The first one to two weeks, you can see a large drop in total body weight. A lot of that's just going to be water because they're entering that deficit and that's okay. You don't have to, you don't have to say, oh crap, the deficit's way too extreme. Let me like start reversing them right away or anything like that. That initial drop in weight is going to definitely slow down and just settle. But thereafter, you want to see like their weekly average go down at about 1% of their total body weight and no, no slower than 0.5%. So it would be one to two pounds per week for that 200 pound male. And then in regards to how aggressive I get from a caloric standpoint, I basically never go lower than the athlete's weight times 10 for their calorie intake. So if you have a 210 pound, that's weight in pounds, correct? Pounds. Yeah. So if you have a 210 pound athlete, I'm never putting them below 2,100 calories. And if they're actually practicing twice a day or something, they're going to be way higher than that. I even, I never put my clients below their body weight times 10, even if they live relatively sedentary lives. So if you guys are dealing with athletes, they should be able to get away with a higher calorie diet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that's because this is another question too, is look, if you're using my fitness power or whatever, that's just probably the most yeah. common one you hear and you're one of the biggest mistakes, people don't even track their calories. And that's what I yeah. keep like, was like, just track it. You don't, you can't, as Hunter says, you can't manage it if you don't if you don't measure it. And I think when you start tracking it and you start getting all those metrics in and things like that, and you start pulling people down, obviously that's where you're going to see changes. But when you're using those apps, sometimes you can input the exercise. And when you're, when you add that exercise, our training, you could burn. I would suspect with our two to three hour sessions, I don't know, 500 plus calories. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> It's substantial. So when you're taking that into consideration, yeah, you have this 200 pound male, you're not going to take him below 2000. You're also adding in the fact that, yeah, you train for two or three hours. Are you going to, how would you just replenish that 500 and put them at 2,500 at that point? And that would be your new lowest point. Or I guess, how would you view that? Because the deficit is much higher. With yeah. That yeah. Bare minimum too. Cause you also need to take into consideration, not just the calories you're burning during the session, 
but what kind of energy is required to recover from the training that you did and what kind of metabolic mm -hmm. processes are upregulated due to the training that you had. So you might be familiar with post resistance training. You're actually burning more calories throughout the day because now you need to drive more nutrients into the muscle cell and those cells are requiring more energy after a really high intensity mm -hmm. interval training. You know that your oxygen consumption level can be higher throughout the day. So now your epoch's gone. Yeah, yeah exactly. Epoch. You can take that into consideration too. I don't think you need to get overly caught up with all these different formulas and trying to figure out like how many calories are they burning here? How many calories are they burning there? But just paying attention to their seven day averages and what is their actual rate of loss is going to tell you if mm -hmm. you're being too aggressive or not aggressive enough, or if you're in that sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. How far is, and this sure. is the last question and we'll, I'll let Hunter take over. He has a good question after this. How far would you take someone down on that cut before you would start reverse dieting? Would you do it in this like cyclic manner where you'd go, okay, we're going to go down three percentage points and then we're going to reverse diet and then we're going to get on another three reverse and then we're going to reverse diet. Or would you just bring someone down 20 percentage yeah, points yeah. and then reverse diet? Or would you go into the point where they're not losing weight anymore? Now it's time to. Yeah, revert. that's a great question, man. So a lot of it with me is never. There's always some sort of like potential plan that's outlined in my mind of where after doing it for five years, you get pretty good at like predicting what might happen. So I have some sort of plan put in place, <laughs> but the majority of it is based on biofeedback. So how are they responding? Are their hunger mm -hmm. levels through the roof? How's their energy? How's their recovery? How's their performance? How's their motivation to stay on the diet? Once they start losing motivation to stay in this deficit, once hunger really starts to increase, if performance starts to drop, that's when I might diet break them. So that can be one to three weeks of eating at theoretical maintenance. The goal is no longer weight loss. You can't consider it a reverse diet or not. It's not like I'm slowly adding calories in. I might add in like 300 or 500 calories in right away, have them maintain that for mm -hmm. one to three weeks, and then boom, let's get back into the deficit because you still have more fat to lose. So you would only reverse diet after they get down yes. to that set point where you're like, look, you're 7%. Like for our guys, honestly, we want as low as you possibly can sure. stomach. Like I probably walk around at nine, 9%. Isaiah is probably pretty similar, eight or nine. That would be via DEXA, BOD pod. I've sure. had it done. Calipers, I don't really believe in, but everyone's like, there's no way like you're 8% or 9%. I'm like, I have multiple yeah, yeah. measures like across like several. It's because my arms, I carry, I carry most of my adipose tissue in my, yeah. my midsection. So my low back my sides and my belly. And I think because I'm not like shredded there, people are like, Oh, well, you must not, but my arms are one yeah. or 2%, like literally yeah. via Dexa there. I'm super vascular. That's irrelevant. But the point being, we want to bring us guys like me and Isaiah lighter, the better it's mass specific yeah. force. So the lighter we are, the higher we're going to jump, the faster we're going to run, assuming that our force yeah. output goes up and we're always, we're good at measuring the force output. Yeah. That's easy. <laughs> like That's not hard for us, but realistically, how would you approach that kind of conundrum of, okay, we can take a hit on performance a little bit. When do I do that? How far should I take someone down? Or is it really just, again, you go back to the Yeah, it's thing. typically going back to the feedback and just knowing, yeah, temporary detriment in performance is okay because you know it's not long-term. So if that weight loss goal is a little bit more important at this very point in time than like their current performance goal, then that's fine. Let's let's take a couple steps back from the performance perspective because we know it's actually going to be a, like a launch pad to move forward. Cause you said the leaner, the better, and, mm -hmm. and they're going to be able to 
essentially be lighter and quicker and more agile, whatever it may be. Cool. Yeah. The only other downside is pulled muscles. That's the biggest thing I see. As soon as guys start cutting yeah. down calories and they try to jump, that's the first place issues arise. Cause you can jump high. If you just give yourself a shit yeah. ton of stimulants, you can get yeah, away yeah. with it. <laughs> like you take in a good carbohydrate meal the day before you take in a bunch of caffeine and you have yeah. some adrenaline, you don't train for a couple of days, like the deload itself and those variables, you're pretty much foolproof. Yeah. You're going to jump high. You're going to perform well. But I think like where the issues would arise would be in the injury prevention sure. type of things, more tendinopathies. You're going to see more issues. I mean, again, I really, it's muscle pulls is the yeah. biggest one I've seen being the biggest issue. I don't know how you would, it's too late if you're using that as yeah. your feedback. No, it's, it's definitely like, too late. Well, it's too late. You, you knew I you were think too low. I th or maybe you just don't do high risk. Yeah. I think a part of that too is aside from like the deficit and being lean, I think part of that is not taking the best like warm up protocols and doing yeah this would be like full this would be like hour-long okay. full dynamic flexibility sprint drills like isometrics for the gotcha tendon. everything and, still, and it still happens like, literally firing gotcha. yeah everything yeah and they would still happen just because jumping especially off one leg or sprinting and i don't know how familiar you are with the kinematics and kinetics like sprinting you're looking at six times body weight on yeah. a single leg and 80 milliseconds at upright sprinting jumping you're seeing single leg takeoffs high jump you're seeing 13 gotcha. times body weight in terms of newtons so if you're a 70 kilogram athlete you're seeing what, what is that like seven thousand yeah, newtons yeah, yeah. <laughs> like or something like that and at peak forces or plus that you might see eight thousand newtons yeah. at peak forces yeah that's crazy that's crazy high on yeah. a single leg when you have that type of kinetics internally you look at the muscle you're seeing insane intramuscular sure. forces higher intramuscular forces if you had a tensiometer or something in there and I think it's just no matter how much you warm up, like it could still yeah. happen if you're not really at that adequate level. So my, my kind of view on it is look, let's pull out. You're not going to hurt yourself lifting yeah. probably. You're not going to pull a muscle lifting. Like odds are I've never had guys pull hamstrings lifting unless they do sure. Nordics where they go to the very bottom yeah. and they're not ready for it or something like that, or super hard yeah. eccentric work. So maybe it's, Hey, pull away the stuff that you know is high risk during this period of time where you're trying to be in a deficit. Cause you'll hear like athletes will lose weight in season, but you should be doing that prior to the season. hundred you know? percent. Yeah. Too many athletes lose a ton so I don't of know. weight. What do you Too think many athletes that? lose a ton of weight in their preseason because they're coming into the sport out of shape rather than coming in in shape. Mm -hmm. And then they're losing it so aggressively that once the season starts, they're actually in a pretty, I don't want to say underfed, but they're not in a healthy spot to perform at their absolute best. They're overworked and under recovered because they didn't do their prep work going into it. Quick random stories. Cause you spoke about like body fat percentages. We had a college basketball player participate in one of our resistance training studies at UT. And he came into the lab at 8.8% via DEXA at the start of the study. This was our, the greatest responder to hypertrophy we've ever seen in our lab. He gained 18 pounds of lean mass in 10 weeks and went from 8.9% body fat to 6.2. It was obs. How the hell did you cheat? No, <laughs> we, we actually had him DEXA the following day because we didn't believe the results. We thought something was wrong. But yeah, he just yeah. totally transformed his body. Like essentially what happened while he's a college basketball player, he obviously has like years of weight training experience. So he was able to squat twice his body weight which was like required to be a, a part of the study and you need a certain amount of lifting experience but he's never done like hypertrophy bodybuilding work 
So you came into the lab. The study was lower body only, but outside of the lab, he was running one of my hypertrophy, like one of my hypertrophy programs for his upper. So this guy just like essentially went from doing strength and conditioning exercises, always being underfed to like eating properly and training like a bodybuilder and just blew the F up. It was pretty epic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Eric Trexler. I'm sure Eric. Yeah. And Greg Knuckles, they were talking about Eric Trent. Quick story. They went to grad school with oh, my brother. Nice. Twin brother. I'm actually good friends with nice. Greg. And <laughs> Trex is saying, good friends with Yeah, they were training with some NFL athletes. And one of the NFL athletes was told, hey, you're going to do an upper body. And the guy was like, no, I can't. And they were like, what do you mean you can't do an upper body? He's like, my biceps get too big. I can't hold the football. Yeah. <laughs> they were like, shut up. Like, just do four weeks and we'll reassess. Yeah, and I think yeah. he went from a like a two seventy five close grip for a, like a three by five to four thirty five at the end of the four weeks, and did his first set, and yelled at the trainer, "See, I fucking told you!" and grabbed yeah. the football and couldn't hold it. It was I fucking I told you. <laughs> it's <laughs> like some people are just different. Like they're just different. <laughs> a thousand percent. We had someone um, come in and we were doing testing, and he was he was in the army. I think he played football at some point. Everyone's doing testing, AMRAP testing. Uh, I think we're trying to find 10RM. So a lot of people are doing like, some people are like 185, some people are 225. Some really strong people are doing 275. This one guy puts on 315 and does 10 pretty easily and then like puts on 365 and like cranks out another 10. We're like, what? The, like the guy's body weight was 190 pounds. I'm like, what? Yeah, no way. Dude. Was his bench like no, like two no? It just there's just some freaks out there too. And like when I was at Stony Brook for at just my athletic like, training in my undergrad, some of those D1 college football yeah. players are just fucking freaks, man. Like complete freaks of nature. And I can see like someone's yeah, best going so from whatever you said, two seventy five to four thirty in like four weeks. Yeah, I've just seen some real freaks of nature. It makes it makes no it, sense to some people, but they're just like the best outliers in the world. There's a guy on YouTube, if you guys search him, he is UF Powerlifter. I don't know if you guys ever seen him. Is it T? Is his name T Isaiah? <laughs> um, but his name's UF Powerlifter. No, he's and he's, is this Asian guy, he's 150 pounds, and he'll bench like 355 for reps. And he looks like a twig. Like, yeah. He doesn't look like he could bench anything. <laughs> and, but yeah, UF Powerlifter, if you guys there was, love, is insane. That was, a, that was a kid at Northern named Ronnie. I think his name, I can't remember his last name, but his name was Ronnie and he would literally do the same thing. Like literally probably 135 pounds and had the, I think he had the floor, like powerlifting's huge in Florida. Yeah, it's pretty think, big down it? here. Like yeah. weightlifting and powerlifting. There's like a weird sport where it's like powerlifting and weightlifting yeah. mixed together. It's like clean with oh, bench yeah, press high, or something, high, right? I actually did that in high school. They do clean and jerk <laughs> and bench press. They, they take the snatch yeah, out of there. Yeah, it's like the weirdest thing ever. <laughs> We'd have so many athletes from Florida come yeah. to Northern and stuff. And this one kid, Ronnie, had the record for his, like, weight class or whatever. His bench was, like, three – it was, like, three-something. It was absurd. And he was yeah. super small. Like, literally 120 pounds, like, in a super lightweight-lifting class and just super powerful, super strong guy. Yeah. The There's dudes are built different. I'm not one of them. Isaiah might be. But, Hunter, I know we're getting close to that 12 o'clock mark, but you have a couple other questions, I'm sure. I got a lot of the answers I needed. <laughs> I really just – sucked all the knowledge from one, one thing that i want to cover <laughs> would you are there any i think you said earlier you need like the foundation set what would you what would you say the foundations are like if there was something if you had somebody that completely didn't do anything like with nutrition mm -hmm. what would you say is things that they have to get done um day to day for for athletes yeah for, or something like that yeah for someone like 
you're trying yeah, to get your to vertical jump as high as possible. Yeah, Isaiah's yeah. actually going. <laughs> Isaiah's trying to hit that big five zero. So let's yeah. get it. Isaiah's trying let's to take care it. of all the big rocks. He's close. <laughs> we need two inches. Yeah, man. <laughs> That's what she said. Um, in regards to like just some, some foundational stuff that you should definitely pay attention to. Absolutely making sure that you're having adequate amount of protein on a daily basis. I like using higher protein intakes than generally recommended. Since you guys are really lean, that one gram per pound is actually pretty darn good for you athletes because that's giving you more than a gram per pound of lean body mass. That's pretty darn good for you guys. Making sure your calories are in a good spot. And then, yeah, pre and post-workout nutrition, the stuff that we spoke about earlier in this on this call, that kind of all comes into play. And then depending on what you're doing from a training perspective, just actually monitoring it and giving yourself an objective way to progress over time. So many people just go into the gym and they do good workouts. Like they have good sessions from session to session, but they don't actually have a plan in place to ensure that what they're doing this time is somewhat uh, better than what they did last time and that they're progressing week to week, month to month, mezzo to mezzo. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. we're all smiling. That's what here you guys that's, do. That's literally yeah, yeah. what we do. <laughs> it cracks me up. I remember in college after I stopped playing baseball, I got into this. All right, I'm going to do everything they wouldn't let me do in baseball. Yeah. Like mainly heavy bench press. I remember going into the gym <laughs> and I couldn't get 225. And by the end of like year two, I had gotten to 325 for four reps. But seeing everyone else around me who I had initially gone into the gym, like, God, how is this kid doing 255 on bench? Yeah. But at the end of year two or three, familiar with he was still overload? 255 on bench. <laughs> and they'd be like, how did you, what, how'd you get there? I'm like, do you write down your workouts? Do you track yeah. your workouts? Do you have any idea what you did last week? Yeah. So yeah. yeah. One thing I wanted yeah. to add though, Chris, is sleep. I think like sleep is often under talked about, especially with athletes. But I think for a lot of our athletes, like maximizing the sleep quality is very important as well for recovery. So I always yeah. tell big rocks are that peri workout nutrition, sleep, overall nutrition. And if you have those three, then we can start diving into like maybe some supplements. Yeah, 100%. You know what I like to do to maximize my sleep with food? Just eat a shit ton of super high glycemic food, like maybe like cinnamon toast crunch, maybe like 2,000 calories right yeah, before yeah, bed. You, you know what I mean? And then get that big insulin spike and just crash. What yeah, do you that's, about that? it hurts. That's a strategy. That can be a strategy. Uh, pass, pass you out. It's something. Yeah. But, uh, a gallon of warm milk. But anyway, Chris, I know that we're running up on, I hate to dive into a whole new topic. We'd love to have you back. I'd love to talk more about the supplementation side for athletes because I know that's an area of uh, high interest for a lot of our athletes in terms of not only the big ones like creatine, multivitamin, fish oil, but also how you would strategically use caffeine, which in the research on collagen usage I know that's a lot of things that uh, our athletes really care about. And so I know that's a whole nother conversation. So we'd love to have you back on. Sure, if, man. If you want, dive into that some more. Yeah, that would be cool. And um, yeah, hopefully. Also, you guys, one of my buddies, one of my colleagues, Jacob Rauch, he might be a great person for you guys to reach out to. He's worked with the Yankees. He currently works for P3. We've done plenty of research oh, wow. together at University of Tampa. We, we both went there. So. Yeah, he's with P3 right now in Cali, and then he was just at their Atlanta facility this past week. He's just a wealth of knowledge, and you guys are familiar with Tim Gabbett, right? Right. Yeah, he's yeah a, I'm familiar he's with him. He's a sports I'd have scientist. To dive into the details yeah, but right now. I feel yeah. like Jacob Rouch is one of my one of my buddies. I feel like he's going to be like the next big sports scientist. And We'd love yeah, to have him on. 
he's doing some really cool research. Yes, yeah, he so he's he working with he's working with P3. I love P3. Yeah. I love what they do. It's crazy. 3D motion analysis synchronized with force yeah. plate data. That's the goal. That's the gold yeah, standard. He right just there. published <laughs> a, a pretty recent paper towards the end of 20 2020 it was pretty phenomenal if you guys want to geek out on it i'm going to pull it up super quick so you can so i can absolutely read the title to you but it's actually an nba players and different jump mechanics so it sounds like it's right up your alley oh Oh, let's please send me this (laughs) yeah i'll just dive into that and read it every day you guys will geek out on this so (laughs) the title of the study is different movement strategies in counter movement jump amongst a large cohort of nba players he basically categorized these players into different clusters from like a statistical point so he had people called stiff flexors mm-hmm. hyper flexors or hip flexors so he was looking at their jump mechanics looking at the ankle knee and hip and looking at he basically split up these different cohorts based on their jump mechanics and characteristics so yeah i'll send you that link right now you guys will really geek out over it okay. yeah that's awesome that's literally i don't know how familiar you are with our podcast at all but it is uh probably my biggest interest is the biomechanics of jumping that's why i love p3 and what they do i'll definitely want to connect cool. with him and just to, yeah try to get as many pieces of gems from him as i can but that is what i do is looking at tendon stiffness why people move the way they do because yeah. you can know that but do you know why yeah. they move the way they Surprise. do <laughs> like, can you break it down and i'm sure that dives into this guy has this rfd capacity and he has this type of movement strategy and it's probably because yeah. of this reason so i'm, I'm yeah. super excited to that'll be to a great thank That's you so awesome. much chris i appreciate it and then and before we sign off you want to tell everyone how they can find you if they want yeah, to get in for touch sh- for sure man in regards to getting in touch with me instagram is a really easy way my handle just my full name so it's at christopher.barricat and then the website where you'll find the most amount of educational content and stuff i'm working on is www.schoolofgains.com and gains is spelt with a z oh, i was gonna ask you yeah absolutely and yeah you'll find like nutritional content training content mainly on obviously bodybuilding focus stuff physique enhancement stuff but the nutrition stuff can absolutely be applied to just maximizing performance and recovery for everybody and so i'll yeah, vouch for christopher's it training it's so fun your hypertrophy <sighs> training is so thanks fun. my man appreciate it yeah that's awesome thanks for coming on chris we we really appreciate you taking time to do that as always guys make sure that you like comment subscribe on the youtube on apple on spotify if you're looking for Chris, you can go to his Instagram, like you said, shoot him a DM, whatever else. And uh, we will catch you guys on tomorrow's episode. Peace out. All right. And so they- and we'll wait.